0: Transform your creative potential today. Head over to UnmistakableCreative.com slash 4Keys. Use the number 4-K-E-Y-S. That's UnmistakableCreative.com slash 4Keys. And download your free copy.
1: After looking at those posters, I turned to him and said, Socrates, I feel kind of guilty or selfish, you know, doing all this work on myself. Uh, My friends are out protesting and marching, and and I'm just training in the gym and studying and... uh, and doing this work with you, you know, and shouldn't I be out there doing more social activism? And, and, and he, he stopped and he turned to me and said the oddest thing. And by the way, I got this little scene into the, into the movie version of the book. Um, but he said, take a swing at me. And I, I went, what? Did you hear what I just said? He said, yeah, come on, I'll give you five bucks if you can slap me on the cheek. So I started bobbing and weaving and I Finally took my shot, tried to slap him on the cheek, found myself on the ground in a rather painful wrist lock. And as he let me up to my helped me up to my feet, he said, Dan, did you notice a little leverage can be very effective? And shaking my wrist out, I said, Yeah, sock, I noticed. And he said, Well, if you want to help people and be active and do these social things, of course, do what your heart tells you, you know. But he said, Do not neglect the work on yourself. So, you can develop that kind of clarity and compassion. So, you'll know how to exert the right leverage at the right place at the right time. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today.
0: As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Dan, welcome to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. So glad
1: to be here with you.
0: Yeah, it is my pleasure to have you here. So I actually was introduced to you by way of a number of people, one of our listeners who had recommended you as a guest, and also um, by our mutual friend, Glenn Beck, who had referenced your book, The Way of the Peaceful Warrior, which we will talk about in quite a bit of detail. But before we get there, I want to start by asking you, what did your parents do for a living and what impacted what your parents did for a living end up having on the choices that you've made with your life and your career?
1: Well, odd as it may seem, I never really thought about uh, what their choices how it impacted my career. I'm not sure it did, but I will say this: my father was an architecture student at USC in, in Southern California um, during the Depression, or just before, uh, a long time ago. And my mother uh, was very good at mathematics; she was aiming for an actuary. And their dreams both kind of uh, changed. Um, the Depression came. Um, his father helped him by a Market like a little food grocery market. They dropped out of college, so my father ended up for many, uh, well, a number of decades, driving a catering truck, um, and he went to factories and you know sold people sundries and and, and so on and, and snacks, uh, and he just hustled around Los Angeles. Got up at four a.m. Every morning, uh, like clockwork. Uh, hardly was ever out sick, and my mother worked as a bookkeeper um, and in supermarkets. And but they that was during the fifties when I remember it as a young boy. And they managed to have a house built, architectural design themselves. They saved. Uh, they were very frugal. You know that was a different time. We had a swimming pool after some time, and that was him working on a catering truck, and my mom working at various jobs. So. What? How that affected me? Actually, it didn't. I, I was the first person in our family, our immediate family, to go to college, and I—that just happened. I kind of—I just flowed with it. I was. I never thought being able to jump up and down on a trampoline and loving to do that would lead to a scholarship to UC Berkeley, where of course you attended decades mm-hmm. later. Um, I never thought it would lead to a, a assistant professorship at Oberlin College and the rest of my life to follow. Uh, mm-hmm. But I, I just the significant point here is jumping up and down on a trampoline. Who would have thought?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: but that's what it led to.
0: So I, I have tons of questions about the gymnastics background. Cause I, that really struck me as well. But one thing that you said that really struck me was this notion of, of dreams changing, uh, You know, I graduated, uh, you know, Pepperdine's MBA program in April 2009 uh, with a dream of working, hopefully, in media and entertainment. And, of course, as you might imagine, graduating in 2009 forces your dreams to change rather rapidly, given the sort of state of the economy. So, you know, given that um, we're going to inevitably face things in our lives that cause our dreams to change, um, how do people let go of what they're hanging on to in order to get to where they're capable of going or to sort of the possible unwritten future
1: well you've you've heard that saying you have to let go of one side of the pool to swim to the other Uh and and so the same applies in life Um, uh, we have to die many deaths to live many lives and so uh, and the Buddha said it very well I think he said everything that begins also ends make peace with that and all will be well uh-huh. And this is this. I have a friend uh, right now, and as we speak, is dying of brain cancer. He's across the world. We communicate regularly, and he's uh, half paralyzed and going through a very difficult time. But he's an inspiration to me. He's one of the most amazing people I've ever met. He's been dealing with brain cancer for years. Now that's letting go. That, in fact, uh, we can talk about it later, um, but. I've created a new online course, which is not available till uh, the spring, but it is a four-minute meditation on the process of dying. And people go, well, mm, that's not one I go, oh, that's, I'm so there, you know, I'm going to sign up for that. And yet, I know of no better way to learn to let go, to learn what it involves, the surrender we go through and that thing we're all going to go through. You know, the last time I looked, the mortality rate was holding steady at 100%. Mm-hmm. and but the, the reason I created this meditation is because i 've not found a better way anywhere to come back to it, reawaken in a fresh appreciation for this rarest of opportunities to live a human life on planet earth. Mm-hmm. Now, that's a bit far afield of your question, but that's what came up for me.
0: uh, So, you know, one of the things that um, I've thought a lot about, right, is how we tend to intellectually understand so many things. I know because I've had conversations, you know, with spiritual teachers, with people like yourselves. And... I understand this idea intellectually, but there are so many times in my life where as much as I want to let go, I don't. I hang on to it until I'm finally forced to let go. And I'm wondering why is it that it takes something as awful as brain cancer for us to finally come to terms with that idea? Like, why, does, it, does it take that and how do we get there without that, if possible?
1: Well, there's, there's a, a saying that uh, to the young, uh, death is just a distant rumor. As it should be. I mean, the young—it's about living, growing, experiencing, their are building. It's like a, a bursting energy. What am I going to do with my life and and build it and family relationships and so on? But to people like me, I'm in—I'm 71 now and I'm quite healthy for my age. I don't really look it very much. Um, I tr- I work out and eat well and so on. But uh, I have more of life, much more of life to look back on than forward to, and that's realistic. Um, now, you know when someone says "We could die in the next moment, everybody goes, "We nod, and hypothetically theoretically that 's possible, but we don 't really expect that it 's going to happen sometime down the line, and yet, remember this approach to living that I teach is called the peaceful warrior 's way peaceful heart warrior spirit and and that approach you cannot ignore the the one event we all have in common. Uh, we only get to do it once. And nobody rehearses for it. Nobody thinks about it. And so it's time, I think, and I'm speaking as a baby boomer probably, um, and many baby boomers would nod who might be listening, but younger people, it's like, well, that's that's nice, you know, it's interesting. But I have other things to do than think about death. Mm -hmm. And yet, and yet, um, those who are willing to do that live a different kind of life because we fear the unknown. And once we get acquainted, Once we make death's acquaintanceship, I believe, um, a lot of the fear fades away. Uh, It becomes perfectly natural. And meanwhile, of course, we recommit to living while we have that chance. Uh, So that's... uh, I've got – you know, one of my hobbies over the decades has been collecting quotations. I have thousands of favorite quotations. I share them on Facebook and Twitter and at my website. Um, uh, It's one of my favorite things to do with people because they have pithy wisdom, a lot of power in a good quotation. Uh, It can make us laugh. It can make us think. For example, just throwing this one out, um, Mark Twain once said, I've had many troubles in my life, most of which never happened. Mm Mm-hmm. And, you know, people listen, oh, yeah, you know, that's kind of true of me, too, because a lot of our troubles are in the imagined future or remembered past, and they're all happening right now. I'm covering a lot of bases here, but anyway, um, so, you know, it's natural for people to want to avoid the idea of, we love life, so why, why think about death, the end of it all, whatever our beliefs are of what happens after death and many people have consoling beliefs reincarnation ascending to heaven and so on that's fine and who knows nobody knows nobody knows really even though people claim to near death experiences I've had you know I've seen sights and had visions but nobody really knows but I can say this for sure if your listeners would like to know where we go after we die I can say this authoritatively we go to the same place we were before we were conceived Hmm. So,
0: uh, you know, it's interesting. It's very clear to me that their, you know, spirituality has, you know, had a deep impact on your life just from having read the book. And I'm curious, did you grow up with um, any religious or spiritual beliefs that informed, you know, your choices later on or your view on all this?
1: Yeah, I came from... Uh, my grandparents were uh, came from uh, Ukrainian Jews, so they were from Ukraine, and, and I don't think my I, my grandparents weren't that observant. Now I am more of a Brand X Los Angeles L.A. kid. You know, I grew up in Los Angeles, and I I never gravitated toward religion. And now I look back on it, and it seemed to me, even though I find many values for people who are religious and have a congregation, they gather as a group. It's a, a sense of unity. They sing together, uh, and and they have beliefs that that, uh, are shared, uh, and that's fine. But it's never been for me. I'm greedy, because if I'm a this, I can't be a that. Uh Uh, There's an us and a them. And so I'm a member of none. I'm a friend to all. And that's pretty much my approach to uh, religious belief and practice.
0: So Walk me through the, the sort of <clears throat> early part of your career starting with um, college in and Berkeley and, and what you know uh, several questions come to this one is I'm curious you know what uh, impact going to a place like Berkeley particularly in the 60s uh, ended up having on your life and, and two, you know uh, did you have a sense for the fact that this was the path that you were going to go down as a writer and a spiritual teacher uh, or is that something that sort of revealed itself to you with time.
1: I think there was a seed, just a seed but no conscious sense of where I was going or what I was doing. I, for me my view of my life is that it's more like improvisational comedy than <laughs> str- than strategic planning uh-huh. and that's the tr- that's the truth um you know they offered me a scholarship to UC Berkeley I, just, actually a partial scholarship i could work and make some money like many students uh, it wasn't even a full ride until later I, I won a world championship then they gave me a full ride so um i, I was going to go to Pasadena City College you know i didn't know but Since they showed me around Berkeley and flew me up there from Los Angeles, I figured, well, I have a good gym team. That sounds like fun. That's pretty much my extent of my planning. And going to Berkeley was a fascinating time, of course. You know, my wife and I are watching Ken Burns' incredible um, uh, series on the Vietnam War. And even though I lived, we lived through it. I didn't. I wasn't in Vietnam. I wasn't fighting in Vietnam. That's another story. But I was a student at Berkeley during that time. The Sproul Hall sit-ins. Mario Savio standing up on the police car, and crowds gathered around, and the protest movement, and, and um, it was all happening. Late '60s. I graduated in '68, and I guess that was just before Governor Reagan started dropping tear gas. You know, not personally, but had that happen on on the campus, um, it got even more raucous right after I left uh, in '68, just through the early '70s. Um, so it was an exciting time, and and. Um, Many things were going on at Berkeley in the spiritual movement, not just the political movement. And I would like to share a story I think uh, your listeners might appreciate, because it brings up this question for for those of us who have a a yearning for the transcendent, uh, interested in spiritual training, whether or not we're religious. Many people ask the question, "What about all this navel gazing? You know, shouldn't you know? You need to be more active and, and politicize, and sign, in uh, protest, and sign petitions, and be more active and out in the world." Well, during, as I relate in, in my first book, "Way of the Peaceful Warrior," um, uh, I was doing a lot of work on myself under the tutelage or the mentorship of the old gas station attendant, I called Socrates. He, you know, he'd never. He wouldn't tell me his real name, but he reminded me of the old Greek sage. So I started calling him Socrates. He was played by Nick Nolte in the movie version of the book. And during that time, I was doing this. Uh, Mongolian warrior self-massage of all the bone surfaces of the entire body. Um, I was doing a lot of self-reflection, self-observation, self-analysis, meditation, inward work. And during this period of a lot of uh, absorption in the self, um, Socrates and I were walking down the street and we came across some posters on the wall that I looked up, and one was about starving children, another oppressed peoples, another about stopping the war, which I, you know, I thought the war was crazy. I mean, that was my personal view. I, I simply couldn't imagine myself doing that, going and shooting people, maybe getting shot. It just, for what, it seemed crazy. Um, that was my sensibility at the time. Um, though I always respect other people's views. That's, you know, if we agree on everything, only one of us is necessary, you know, so people have different perspectives. In any case, after looking at those posters, I turned to him and said, Socrates, I feel kind of guilty or selfish, you know, doing all this work on myself. Uh, my friends are out protesting and marching, and, and I'm just training in the gym and studying and, uh, and doing this work with you, you know, and shouldn't I be out there doing more social activism? And, and, and he, he stopped. And he turned to me and said the oddest thing. And by the way, I got this little scene into the into the movie version of the book. Um, but he said, take a swing at me. And I, I went, what? Did you hear what I just said? He said, yeah, come on, I'll give you five bucks if you can slap me on the cheek. So I started bobbing and weaving, and I finally took my shot, tried to slap him on the cheek, found myself on the ground in a rather painful wrist lock. And as he let me up to my, he helped me up to my feet, He said, Dan, did you notice a little leverage can be very effective? And shaking my wrist out, I said, yeah, sock, I noticed. And he said, well, if you wanna help people and be active and do these social things, of course, do what your heart tells you, you know? But he said, do not neglect the work on yourself so you can develop that kind of clarity and compassion so you'll know how to exert the right leverage at the right place at the right time. And that's what I've been doing ever since. In one way or the other, um, my writing, I teach all over the world. Just trying to exert the right leverage in my own way. Now, I could be working in a soup kitchen. But there are other people fully capable of doing that. I'm doing what I'm suited to do, which is to reach out. My cause are the people I speak with. My cause is right now, speaking and sharing. That's what I do. Hopefully, it makes some kind of a difference in reminding people of the bigger picture, maybe there is some good in that in the long run. Maybe it's the only good. I don't know. You know, I remember Ramana Maharshi, a spiritual teacher from India, once said, I give people what they want, so eventually they may want what I want to give them.
0: So, one thing that really um, has been on my mind lately is is i 'm working on this this article about the things that we should have learned in school but never did, and you know I asked you know people on Facebook just to see what the response would be. And one of the, the common themes that came back was this notion of, you know, managing our psychology and this, this relationship that we have with self and, and sort of this inner work that you're talking about. And I'm, I'm curious why you think it is that we don't teach this in our schools, despite the fact that it seems so essential to our well-being. And, you know, it seems like literally the, the, you know, way to deal with it is, okay, we get to the point where we're completely screwed up as adults and we're forced into doing things like therapy and reading self-help books and Doing whatever it takes to get to this, this sort of place that you're talking about. So why do you think that is? Why are we not taught this earlier, earlier in life?
1: Well, it's a good question. Uh, and I would answer it based on this. Um, we live in two realities, potentially our psyche, let's say exists in two realities, but we spend 99% of our time, maybe more. In one reality which we call the conventional world which is appropriate we ought to we live here in everyday life here and now right now I'm looking out at a busy street here in Brooklyn New York um, you may hear a siren during our time together I don't know but uh, this is the, the area of relationships and taking care of our health and finances and career decisions and the conventional aspects of daily life this is what we meet and um, So much of our training in school, academics, is to train the mind and learn about life uh, and how things work as much as we can, learn some some critical thinking abilities, hopefully, Um, and find a way to finding a relationship, the fulfillment that can come from that, the companionship, and and all those things. But there is another realm, which is what I would call the transcendent. And somebody might say, well, come on, what is that? You know, show it to me. I mean, wh- wh- what do you mean? All that we have is what we see. News, weather, and sports. <laughs> and that may be true from some perspectives. But yet there are people who have gravitated toward religion all over the world, one religion or another. There are people who do spiritual practices, the Buddhists, the Sufis, um, the Christian mystics, the Hasids, uh, the, you know, the Kabbalists, I mean, there are esoteric uh, approaches, and all of them have that yearning for the transcendent. And so they do these practices, whether it's meditation, chanting, um, insight work, uh, whether it's experimenting with psychotropic elements or fasting. Or There's so many methods and paths to have these altered states of consciousness, not just to get high and, wow, wasn't that groovy? It's like going to a good movie. That's not what I'm talking about. I mean really having some kind of breakthrough where we begin to see life's bigger picture. Um, so what i what i'm saying is um, there are fundamental life skills we can learn that help with conventional life but can also help us maybe to start to glimpse the transcendent to get those and many of us have you know we've had those numinous moments those glimpses of enlightenment but they happen very quickly maybe when we were a child sitting in a garden maybe recently for no reason at all we had this sense of peace or perfection um if we look carefully in our lives most of us have had moments of that experience Uh, and you know life is a series of moments um that's all it is now and now and now and the quality of our moments become the quality of our life what i mean by that Srini, is that i've never met a neurotic person for example I've only met people who have more neurotic moments, but sometimes they function quite well and they forget to be neurotic. I've never met an intelligent person. I've only met people who have more intelligent moments. Now, I know I've had some intelligent moments, but I've also had some pretty stupid ones. So it's about, and even enlightened moments, it's about increasing the number of those moments. And to do, how do we do that? Well, we have to free our attention. Because most of the time, our attention or our awareness is tied up with the challenges of everyday life. Daily life is like a form of spiritual weight training. You know, when you lift weights, you get stronger. And so it's like whack-a-mole, I think, daily life, where one thing comes up and we bang it and then something else pops up. And it's not, that's not a negative view of life. That's, how, that's our training, our spiritual training begins in everyday life it begins on the ground not up in the air somewhere you know the tree has to put in deep roots if it's going to bear bear fruit so there are these life skills how about patience like the ability to drive in in gridlock traffic Mm -hmm. or the and and make good use of that time learning a new language or listening to a book on you know an audiobook the point is uh, waiting in line and being good at that And enjoying watching people. So there are some fundamental life skills, but they don't usually teach that in school. And so this approach to living, I call the Peaceful Warrior's Way, really involves those life skills. And I probably should mention now um, that I have a new audio program, a six-hour audio program called the Complete Peaceful Warrior's Way. And whether somebody, if somebody likes this interview and they, what I'm saying makes sense, they might want to check that out. It's right there featured uh, at my website. Uh, But it's the complete peaceful warrior's way. And that does go into all those life skills. Um, Why breathing? Why we can practice breathing? Even though it's autonomic, you know, you don't have to think about breathing. Mm -hmm. But most of us breathe just deeply enough to stay conscious. And there are practices of breathing that can help with um, kind of emotional balance. And, uh, you know, I've studied martial arts for many years, too, and it can help in any situation of high uh, adrenal stress, that sort of thing. So, you know, yoga has pranayama and many different systems have uh, practices of breathing that can be useful, like kundalini, both on a practical and practical. say transcendental level so that that's going on for a while but you mentioned these skills they don't teach in school Uh, maybe some schools do teach them Mm -hmm. if i was a headmaster i would teach these and in a sense that's what i'm doing when i travel around i'm a traveling headmaster Mm -hmm.
2: many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out my solution is plush care
4: Go to PrettyLitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes.
0: Nice dress. Uh, it's a, it's a t-shirt.
2: Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health
0: So I want to come back to to sort of the whole idea of of you know the foundational ideas and the way of a peaceful warrior. But before we go there, um, I'm curious what two things. One, what uh, gymnastics taught you about life and how you applied that going forward. And two, what happened um, career wise and life wise between Berkeley and writing the way of the peaceful warrior. Like what took place in your life that led to this point.
1: Sure. Well, uh, you can remind me of the second part of that a little bit later, because I'd love to share that. Um, So, well, maybe I should start with that, and you can remind me of the first point. Um, Okay. At Berkeley, um, you know, I kind of had the feeling I was leading a charmed life. I was somehow – I wouldn't have used this term back then, but kind of manifesting what – I needed to happen I mean I, I ended up with a scholarship to college so I graduated a degree in psychology um, but back then it was all experimental psych you know I was qualified to clean rat cages I mean it was not humanistic or transpersonal psychology the kind that interested me what makes people think and tick uh, and social psychology was interesting too so I wasn't really going to go on in psychology uh, but I didn't know what I was going to do I really hadn't a clue I actually I did fly flying trapeze for a couple months, training in Los Angeles after graduating. Um, But I I was uh, married. As a senior in college, I got married, and we had a baby on the way. And so I didn't think a circus life was going to be my thing. Um, So I ended up uh, going up just for a visit back to Berkeley to visit my old coach, and my wife visited, my, my then wife visited her relatives, uh, her mother and father. And I, I said, hey, coach, how are you doing? I just dropped into the gym to say hello. We're taking a vacation. I might be looking for a job, you know, I don't know, maybe as a recreation director. And he said, oh, well, Dan, you know, just yesterday, the gymnastics coach at Stanford University, just down the peninsula, um, he, uh, he just left. He got offered the job of athletic director up in Alaska, and the job's open. Why don't you go down and talk to the athletic director? So I did, drove down, and made an appointment, and the next day, at 22 years of age, I found out um, I was the head coach of gymnastics at Stanford University. So I spent four years there, and things changed. Uh, I didn't really care who won anymore. I wasn't so much into competition, much more into collaboration. I appreciated all the athletes. By the way, the team went from the bottom of the conference at, uh, at Cal. Um, when I started there, they were worse than most of the high school teams in the area. Uh, they're Pretty, pretty bad. Uh, in three and a half years, we were one of the top three gymnastics teams in the country. Uh, and I trained the top U.S. Olympian. Uh, And he was the three-times all-around champion at uh, NCAA. So something worked. But yet I decided it was time to move on. And I got offered – I had met somebody who ended up being the athletic director and physical education chairman at Oberlin College in Ohio. And he said, Dan, would you like to – come be a faculty member and assistant professor position. that looked interesting. I could make up my own courses, and I was evolving and changing my interests. and it wasn't so much about competitive sport for me anymore. so I went to, to Oberlin and I was there for a couple of two and a half years and went back to California. I'd left there voluntarily. just I wanted to get back to California and, and do some activities with a spiritual institute at that time. So that pulled me away. Now I thought I was living a charmed life. 22-year-old kid, head coach, major university, and then boom, college professor. Um, And these things just came out of the blue. And I just had a BA in psychology. But that's what happened. And after I left Oberlin, the bottom dropped out. I was working as a typist. I got fired from that job. I was working painting houses. Uh, I did all kinds of things. And, you know, it was just broke most of the time. And uh, that happened for a number of years. Now, during that time, my wife and I divorced my first wife after eight years. Um, I ended up uh, meeting the love of my life. We've been married 43 years now, Joy. Uh, And... We raised children. But meanwhile, I was just struggling to find out how do I use my skills? How do I monetize writing somehow? And later on, I had this idea, maybe I'd write a book someday about some of my experiences that I've had, because I was always searching for every experience I could and, and learning and with a commitment to share with other people somehow. But it still never struck me I'd actually write a book until a certain point in time where I I was writing a series of articles for a gymnastics magazine, and it got thicker and thicker, the pile of these series of articles. And I went, wow, that looks almost like a book manuscript. And that was the first time it occurred to me I might write a book. Mm -hmm. And now, as you may have mentioned already, you know, 17 books over the last 30 years. um, So life has changed considerably. But I didn't strategize for any of that. I I don't believe many of us do. Even people who have a clear plan, I'm going to go to school, graduate school, get a PhD in this field, or I'm going to go to medical school or law school. Sometimes they end up doing that. And as Joseph Campbell, won, by the way, there maybe you hear one of the sirens in the background. Mm-hmm. How appropriate um, <laughs> to this conversation. Um, Joseph Campbell said many people climb to the top of their career ladder only to find out it's leaning against the wrong wall. So there are many people who are former lawyers, former stockbrokers, former MBAs, recovering MBAs, you know, um, and, and they go into different fields that appeal to them more because they didn't really know themselves. They just set their course doggedly and were willing to go through the struggles, the academic struggles. And for me, it was like, I didn't know. I don't know. I don't know. Let's just see what happens next. For me, it happened to work out. It's not a strategy I necessarily recommend. But that's, that was this part two of your question. Mm-hmm. And I do have a story to tell about the first part. Mm-hmm. What did I learn from gymnastics? And in response to that, if, if you don't mind, yeah, I'm waxing on yes. here. Okay. Um, w- here's the thing. Um, I personally not met any dumb athletes now, as, as I say that, some people will come up with an archetype in their mind. or Oh, I've met some athletes who, you know, shouldn't have even been in college. They were taking all easy courses and so on. But yet, people who are truly athletic, who have coordinated skills, can move quickly. Um, they have smart nervous systems, and their nervous system is connected to the brain. I've met athletes who aren't academically inclined, who don't like abstract theories, and don't play the academic game very well. So they're not successful at that particular game. Uh, and they just barely get through college if they get through it all. But they're, and athletes, whether it was me in gymnastics or athletes in football or baseball or tennis or swimming or golf, whatever it is, and that includes musicians, people who train at something, they learn all the universal or spiritual laws through their training. But they don't know what they've learned because they're so focused on performances and scores and matches and points and records and who wins, who loses. They're, they're focused on the externals. They don't realize they've learned the, the law of process, breaking things down into small steps. They learn about the law of presence, living. They know what it means to focus in the present moment. So athletes learn a lot, and I learned a lot, but I didn't know I learned it until years later so until I could generalize it into everyday life, the wisdom that I'd gathered. But the story I wanted to tell doesn't really involve gymnastics so much, though I may tell one later if it comes up. But it actually involves something that happened around my 60th birthday. I wanted to do something important to mark that event. And I finally came down to, well, why don't I learn to ride a unicycle? Never been able to do that. I tried a few times, and if any of your listeners or if you, Serena, have tried, you know it's humbling. You get on it, and it goes, whoop, out from under you. And you get, Even if you can ride a bike well, even with riding a bike with no hands, you get on it, and it goes, whoop, out from under you again. It's very humbling, and it felt impossible. But I borrowed a unicycle from a friend. He told me to use a double tennis court. Because it's solid, you know, level ground. And I could get a death grip on the chain link fence. So I was holding on that fence and trying to ride slowly around this huge double court. And it took me probably over an hour, just slowly. And, you know, it would go out and I'd get back on and hold on to the fence. And at the end of each day of practice, I would lean forward and not ride, but careen as many pedals as I could get through before it, the thing went out from under me. So, th- to make the story short, it was a real struggle and very discouraging for a couple of weeks and by the end of the third week I was able to ride figure eights around the tennis court. It suddenly it clicked. I could ride. And it's much like people have learned to drive a gear shift car. You know, their their brain is I don't know, how do I do I push in the clutch step on the gas, let out the clutch. Uh, but then it becomes automatic. And I learned two things from this struggle to learn to ride a unicycle at 60 years old. One, I learned that everything is difficult until it becomes easy. And the second thing I learned was even more significant. And that is, I had days during this three-week process where everything fell apart. My mind was confused. My body was confused. I was worse than I was three or four days before that. And yet I noticed something. The next day after those so-called bad days, I usually made a breakthrough, like a jump in learning. Um, And I realized the learning was actually happening. Things were being transferred from my front brain to my back brain, the automatic part, um, during those confusing times. And I just stayed with it. You know, sometimes I said I quit, but then I came back the next morning. You know the Japanese saying, fall down seven times? Get up eight times. And the truth is, any if you fall down seven times, you only have to get up seven times. <laughs> but it sounds better the other way. So, point is, um, when we hit a crisis point in a relationship or at work uh, or in any learning capacity, if we just stay with it, we do break through to deeper levels of understanding, uh, skill level, uh, and uh, depth. So that's what I learned from training. Probably I'd learned that lesson in gymnastics many years before, but it was a more recent time. So that's why I thought I'd share that.
0: Hmm. Interesting. You kind of described my process of learning how to surf.
1: Ah, there you go. Same, right? Yeah.
0: You You mentioned this period of your life post Oberlin, um, that was a real struggle, you know, being broke, going through a divorce. And I'm curious how you maintained faith and didn't lose hope during that sort of darker chapter of your life.
1: Well, in my case, I didn't really have much of a choice. I mean, I had a family to support, uh, wife I loved and kids and adored and, you know, I had to do what I could do. So I found whatever was available. I looked for the best option using my skills. And that's what anybody would do, I think. And I did this and then I did that. And I always kept my eyes open on the horizon for possibilities. Uh, and I, I probably could have coached at a gym somewhere for, you know, $12 an hour, $10 an hour. Uh, I was certainly skilled at teaching gymnastics. Maybe eventually opened my own school. That could have been another way to go. But it just happened I had this urge. Well, actually, what happened, Srini, was sometime after I was teaching in Oberlin, maybe around that time, I was really into self-improvement. And many of your listeners probably are, too. Um, that's one reason probably they're interested in hearing your your podcast, which, uh, terrific podcast. So I was, you know, I was learning speed reading and memory courses and uh, magic and martial arts and anything I could do to improve myself and training in gymnastics. So I wanted to improve myself. But one day it struck me after just endless hours every day just working on things, I realized no matter how much I improve myself, only one person would benefit. Which is good. You know, I believe in self improvement, self help. Um but when I realized that I was called, you know, I I realized that if, if I could influence other people's lives, one person, five, ten or more, in a positive way, that made my life more meaningful. Not everybody is called to teach, but I was. And so down the line, eventually, you know, I was a fitness coach. I went to people's houses, helped them get in shape. But I was always teaching something about life through whatever I taught. It wasn't just about the skills. I could teach the skills. Um, So... That that was my calling, teaching, and I taught what I knew, which was gymnastics. But as my interest expanded outside of the gymnasium, I began to teach other things and call it the bigger picture of life. And I finally found a way to articulate it with this term, peaceful warrior, based on my martial arts background, the idea of we're all striving for a peaceful heart, but there are times we need a warrior spirit just to face daily life. So when you say, was I depressed or was I discouraged? Sure, I was. Sure. Um, I just wondered what I was doing with my life. And many of us have gone through times like that, if we allow ourselves to. Uh, But, well, Shoma Morita, a Japanese psychiatrist, had a great proverb. He said, when running up a hill, it's okay to give up as many times as you want, as long as your feet keep moving. So I kept my feet moving. And I looked for this and I looked for that. And eventually things happened to work out. One other thing that really struck me is you mentioned the
0: preface, uh, this line in particular caught my attention that life brought rewards but no mental satisfaction. And so a couple of questions come from that. I mean, you having you know, reached this point, multiple books, millions of copies sold, book turned into a movie, um, do you still feel that way about sort of the rewards that have come from your life? And two, why is that? You know, I can't tell you the number of people who, you know, have told me that, yeah, money won't make you happy, but they're always the people who have plenty of it who tell me that. Um, And, you know, I I feel like I've learned this lesson having to having experienced sort of the publishing deal and and all that thinking. You know, there was, I think, you know, 10 years ago, if you told me this is what was going to happen, I thought, yeah, I'm going to be on cloud nine forever the moment that happens. Sure. Um, But what I realized was, wow, okay, now that that problem is solved, there's something else that's taking over my life. It was kind of like you said, you know, playing a game of whack-a-mole. Something else has replaced it. So I'm curious, you know, why is it that people seem to have to actually experience the reward to realize that it's not going to lead to the satisfaction they think it will?
1: When I'm asked how I ended up doing what I do, I usually credit (laughs) disillusion. (laughs) And I I believe because I was fairly successful, I was a, a, you know, kind of an elite athlete and had a girlfriend and my grades are pretty decent. So I was successful in college. Uh, And afterward, I was a coach at Stanford and our team started doing great. So I was successful at that. But there's a saying in the Hindu tradition, uh, maybe the Vedantic tradition, it's neti neti neti, not this, not this, not this. And it, it's a slightly different meaning. It's about I'm not the mind, I'm not the emotions, you know, and so on. I'm not my thoughts. But really, it's, for me, it was in daily life. Well, this didn't do it. I was happy for a little while, but it didn't last. Oh, now I've, now I've achieved this. Well, that didn't do it. Um, you know, I, I, I often say to people, one of the best things about going to college, and you, you can relate to this, um, is that it doesn't, you find out it doesn't make you happy. Uh-huh. It, doesn't, it doesn't come with a diploma. And people who never went to college, sometimes for years, they'll go, if only I'd gone to college, I'd be happy. Or if only I had an even better relationship, I would be happy. If only I made more money. If only I had a better job. If only I had more status. If only I had more respect. If only I traveled more. If only I had more money again. Uh, and and bought this or bought that. If only I had my own house. If only, if only. And Until people realize there is no such thing as future happiness. That happiness is a practice right now. If you're not happy now, you're not happy. Mm -hmm. And thinking I will be in the future. No, the future never comes. It's always the future. So we need to live in in a way not self-indulgent, but a way that we find out how to be happy despite everything. As a practice, an old mentor used to call it unreasonable happiness. Uh, not because there's a good reason all the time, but just to bring that, that energy, that radiance. It's like, how do people act when they're feeling really happy? Expansive, kind. Yeah. And so act that way anyway. Now that's a whole other area, but back to disillusion disillusion means a freeing from illusion. So, when I was disillusioned with that and disillusioned with this, it kept leading me onward to the question of where is happiness? What is it? See, to me, I believed when I wrote Way of the Peaceful Warrior back in 1980, that's when it came out originally. I believed that whatever we thought we wanted, we wanted because it promised happiness, fulfillment, satisfaction. And sometimes we are happy for a little while you can buy an ice cream cone while you're licking that cone you're probably happy in that moment but it melts or you finish it and so nothing seems to last so I wanted to know where is that base level of of fulfillment of satisfaction of happiness and over the years over the decades I came to realize that I don't think the end point of human evolution is finding a way to walk around with a gleeful smile on our face all the time I think what we want, even more than that happy feeling, is we want a sense of meaning, a sense that our lives count for something, that we're connected, and we have a purpose. Because, we, you know, we're hardwired goal seekers. From the time we're infants crawling across the floor, we're heading for something. There's something we want. That's why we're crawling toward it. And so I believe success, Serena, I would define success as progress toward a meaningful goal Hmm. it's not about reaching the destination because most of our lives are spent you know in the in-between it's like a a golfer who spends a few seconds swinging the uh the club and then they walk or ride in their cart a, a, a ways and then they stand and take another second swinging the club but is life just about swinging the club or is it also about that ride in between Mm-hmm. And so that's why I ended up writing the book, No Ordinary Moments, as a reminder to people that there are no ordinary moments. And those who realize that begin to live in a different way, more aligned with the idea of Zen, of the way we do anything is how we do everything. And treating life as an art and everything we do as a practice. Hmm. Wow. Uh- so
0: there's one other thing that really struck me in the book as I was going back through it this morning, uh, in preparation for our conversation. There's an equation uh, that I circled that, and that was happiness equals satisfaction divided by desires, and that really struck me. So I had to ask you about, you know, what you meant by that, um, and how we apply that in our lives.
1: Well, there are people who have multi-millions, even billions of dollars that uh, I would say probably aren't any happier than anybody else. And by the way, you mentioned money and happiness. Um, most of us know that people who make less than $75,000 a year that have trouble keeping a roof over their head or, or food on the table, um, yeah, they are happier if they make more money. But apparently, some, a number of studies have found that people who make more than $75,000 a year aren't, uh, aren't proportionately happier. Someone who makes $150,000 is not twice as happy as someone who makes 75000 And even lottery winners don't report being any happier. In fact, many of them self-sabotage, lose all their money. But that's another issue we don't have time to get into here. Um, the point is, um, yeah, you're right. You know, money at, at beyond a certain point doesn't bring happiness. Um, uh, so I, I – in saying that, I think I lost track of your question. Please remind me.
0: Yeah, again, so what, this what, equation what, of happiness equals satisfaction divided uh, by desires. What did you mean okay. by that?
1: Well, again, um, someone can learn to be satisfied with a very modest life and really be blissed out. Uh, somebody else may have millions of dollars, and, and they, but they have to have that one more Ferrari or Testarossa or that one trip, that one experience to be happy. And they're really not. Because they have so many desires, and desires never end. Now, there's nothing wrong with desire. We all have goals, something we want to move toward. And that's what gives our life meaning and purpose. Uh, Nothing wrong with that, but it can be endless. So that's why that formula um, equals satisfaction over desires. The, The more desires we have... Well, I don't know if it's, I don't remember, I don't see the equation in my head, and you know, I wrote this a long time ago. <laughs> but, but I think your listeners get the idea yeah. that, that if we have uh, unending desires, there's not much satisfaction. But if we learn to be satisfied with the simple things of life, um, then we have a baseline. And by the way, you know, what I really help people to do in my various seminars and, is about functioning well in life, simply functioning because, it may not sound too sexy or spiritual, but those who get things done have a higher baseline of fulfillment in their life than those who don't get things done. And many of us don't get things done because of our emotions, because we're, we're, we have self-doubts, insecurity, we're confused, and all this internal stuff, and we believe we need to fix our insides in order to live well. We need to have the right thoughts, the right feelings, Uh, And I don't really believe that anymore. Um, That's one way what I teach is quite different from many internal teachings. uh, Because I found we have less direct control by our will over our emotions. You know, emotions happen to us. Thoughts happen to us. They arise in our field of consciousness. We become aware of this thought and that thought, whether we're meditating or just walking around. And we have emotions pass through us like the weather. They change all the time. We don't really have direct control. We can't will ourselves to feel differently in any moment. But feelings do pass and change all the time anyway. And we, we don't have spam filters in our head that just have positive thoughts. You know, my thoughts are sometimes positive, sometimes negative, but it doesn't bother me anymore. They're just stuff arising. But the one thing we can control and we have more responsibility for then is what we actually do. Whether or not we're feeling confident or shy uh, courageous, happy, unhappy, whatever, we can still do what needs to be done in the moment. We can learn to accept our feelings and thoughts. as natural to us in the moment without trying to fix them, change them. Just accept them. Okay, that's what I'm feeling. That's what I'm thinking. Meanwhile, what do I need to do right now? And that takes a warrior's spirit.
0: So I want to finish with two final questions. Um, yeah, people are listening to this and we're at the beginning of a new year. So I'm curious, uh, you know, what words of advice come to mind when you think about the fact that we're starting a new year?
1: Well, I'm glad you asked that. And by the way, I do appreciate this opportunity to reach out to your listeners. It's really a delight for me to do that. So so thank you, Sereni. Um, and, and this is what I would say. You look on somebody's Facebook page, or they look on their friend's Facebook pages, and they see everybody wanting to show the world they're living the good life, there in their chai latte, and their balloon at the party, whatever it is, everyone wants to live the good life, we're all seeking that. And to show everybody else. And we compare with other people. And that's why many people are miserable who look at Facebook all the time. Because their friends, oh, they're having children and I'm not. Am I getting behind? And, and we have all these comparisons. The Buddhists say comparison is a form of suffering. Because it's a disrespect for who we are right now. And what we're doing. Um, um, someone once said, I cannot write a book commensurate to Shakespeare. But I can write a book by me. And that's my attitude. So instead of comparing ourselves to other people, or even comparing ourselves to ourselves, old people often go, oh, when I was young, I used to be able to do this, and used to be able to do that, and I used to look differently and all that, instead of accepting where we are now. So that brings me to the answer to your question, which is, I would advise people to consider trusting themselves, trusting their process unfolding as it is. That's what I would say to my younger self as well when I was discouraged and not knowing what I was going to do with my life. Just trust. Keep your eyes open, your heart open. Stay open to opportunities. Things change. Stay alert. Do your best. But trust the process unfolding rather than comparing to other people and, and the sense of desperation. I, I have young people come to me. Hey, listen, I'm, I listen to 20 podcasts and and I, I unleash my power and I do all this, you know. But I don't know if I'm reaching my full potential. And you know, there's a little perverse side of me, Serena, that says uh, to them, what if you have reached your potential? (laughs) What if this is it? The rest is free play. Just live your life. Have a good time. Because this is crazy making. You know, I'm doing pretty well, but I haven't reached my potential yet. Why don't we just live our life and evolve and grow naturally without the desperation? And that's all about trusting our process and life. Wow.
0: Um, well, I want to finish with my last question, which is how we finish all of our interviews at the Unmistakable Creative. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable?
1: Well, I'm going to sound like Bruce Lee here, <laughs> In cite, citing the perfection of imperfection. I think being absolutely vulnerable to the world, like a child, open, being willing to make mistakes, um, and being willing to live our life, not try to live someone else's, that makes us unmistakable. We become an original. And it's important for each of your listeners to consider that their story, they are a story unfolding. They don't just have a story, but it is their treasure. Because each of us, you and me and every listener, there's not a single story on the planet exactly like it. So it's our treasure and we never know what the next chapter is going to be in the novel of our life
0: Wow Well, I I think that makes a a really fitting end to our conversation Um, I can't thank you enough for taking the time to join us and and share your story and your insights with listeners and uh, Where can people learn more about you and your work?
1: Uh, Best place is peacefulwarrior.com. Awesome, And, and there's lots there to look over